0: All right, our scripture reading this morning, it's Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 976. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, page 976 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the, pre, uh, for the reading of the word. Starting in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. And believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. Good to see you all. All
1: right. So we are finishing up our solace series this morning. Um, like has already been mentioned. I'm <laughs> doing well, Barry. How are you? Good. Good to see you. So um, as we dive into Romans 11, 33 to 36, that's our text for this morning. As we dive in, this is going to be a little bit of a unique morning because first off, I'm going to offer an apology. Second, oh, I got your attention. Um, Second, a caveat for this series, and then third, kind of the introduction to Romans 11, okay? So first off, an apology is in order here. Um, So this past week, a dear sister in the Lord emailed me to say that she was disappointed to hear the word hell used in a way that belittles the dreadful, terrible reality Um, that is hell last Sunday in the message. So I thought, oh. (laughs) I went back and listened to what I said and had to agree with her. So I apologized to her, and she wasn't asking for me to publicly apologize, but I want to apologize to all of you as well. So I was speaking of, if you weren't here, or if you're visiting or whatever, I was speaking of the freeness of the gospel and the fact that Roman Catholics often look at our understanding of the security and assurance that flows from it is finished. So last week was on the basis of Christ's work alone, solus Christus, and we looked at that from John, 1930, it is finished, when Jesus said that on the cross. So we talk about security and assurance that is ours because of the fact that it is finished, that Jesus totally paid our debt. We can't come in and out of justification like they view it. We're justified once forevermore. But they see that as presumption at times, and it can be demotivating in their view for people who ought to be working out their salvation um, with fear and trembling. So what I said was, it's not this get-out-of-hell-free card so that you can put it in your back pocket and go and live however the hell you want. Okay, it's a second hell. Um, so it's actually not what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> and I just was not as careful as I should have been. What I wrote in my notes was for Protestants, this fact that it is finished does not mean that we can go live like hell. Okay, like in a hellish manner, as if it doesn't matter. So I wasn't careful in what I actually said. And even though I was, in a sense, kind of loosely quoting the common sentiment of many who view salvation by grace alone through, through Christ alone as a license to sin... I use the word hell in a flippant way, um, which does just make this very real, terrifying reality. Um, It just kind of belittles it, and and it's just flippant. So I apologize for using the word in that way. Um, Preaching and teaching God's word is a sacred responsibility. Words matter. I want to be really careful um, in using them. And I think this is also an opportunity for me to say, Um, that I just commend this sister for graciously confronting me and I would want to encourage all of you if I ever misspeak or misrepresent God's word don't ever hesitate to do the same thing, okay? Um, So that also got me thinking of an elephant in the room maybe for some of you that we haven't addressed unless you were here at 9 o'clock because the documentary addressed it fairly well Um, But for the rest of us, I thought it would be healthy um, to consider this. And this is where I said, apology, just did that. Caveat for this whole series. Elephant in the room. I was wrestling with it and even deciding whether or not we should show the documentary, um, even if we should do this whole month on the solas, because um, Reformation history, even though it's wonderful, is also mixed, and there's a lot of mess and sin involved in it. So um, we haven't addressed really the flaws of these significant historical figures that we've honored in this series. So often it's mentioned, for instance, that John Calvin allowed the city council of Geneva where he lived and served to execute Michael Servetus for heresy. Luther was mightily used by God and Luther was also given to some pretty vicious verbal attacks on those with whom he disagreed. So again, the video showed that, but some of you weren't here for that. So some of what he said was warranted. Some of it was way over the line. Perhaps some of you have heard the charge leveled that Luther was anti-Semitic. Okay? So it's a little more complicated than that. But still, through his writings, he made some virulent ret- attacks on the Jews. So some people even draw the connection between Luther Wittenberg, Wittenberg in 1543 and Nazis and the atrocities they committed 400 years later. So this is serious stuff. We shouldn't just kind of, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Let's just sweep that under the rug and ignore it. It's an elephant in the room for some of you. So I read one article by a Jewish man who's also a believer in Jesus. He happens to also be a pastor in Manhattan. So you can understand how conflicted he is about the celebration of the Reformation with Martin Luther at the center of it all. So what do we make of this? Well, let me just offer a few thoughts. Again, this is almost like introductory or a qualification for the whole series, and then we're going to dive into our specific passage in Soledad Gloria for this week. So a few thoughts. One, we do need to understand the men and women involved, people in context, as well as understand their context in which they lived. So this isn't to whitewash anything, justify anything, excuse anything sinful, but it can be helpful to understand who they were and the time in which they lived. So for instance, Stephen Nichols He's one of the guys in the video. If you were here, he said this. Now, we need to say that Luther was an equal opportunity offender. It wasn't just that his rhetoric was reserved for the Jews, he used the same rhetoric for the Papists, for the Anabaptists, for the nominal Christians that he used for the Jews. Luther saw their beliefs as a betrayal of Christ, a betrayal of the gospel as a failure to recognize Jesus' coming as the Messiah. And so it was not an ethnic motivation that prompted Luther to this. It was a theological one. Another scholar adds this clarification. Luther all his life longed that Jews should be converted and join the church. Hitler never wanted Jews to join the Nazi party. That's the difference between anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish. Again, not that this is good, but understanding... Luther wasn't opposed to the Jews because of their blood. He was opposed to the Jews because of their religion. As he wanted, and he wanted them to join the Christian church. If you're really anti-Semitic, you're against Jews because of their blood, and there's nothing Jews can do about that. So we need to understand these people, but also understand their times. We have no, we live in a pluralistic democracy. We just don't understand this wedding of church and state that was so normal for them. So they lived in a time where church and state were wedded. Luther was basically working toward creating a unified Protestant society just like there was a unified Roman Catholic society. So the church and state had been wedded under Roman Catholic teaching and law, and he wanted it to be wedded under Protestant teaching. So you can see how sticky that gets when you're talking about the use of the sword that is rightfully in the hand of the state. So should that just be to criminals? What about to people who believe differently? And you can see why heretics sometimes died. So for instance, Luther said this about the Anabaptists with whom he disagreed. to give you a feel for living in that time how he was thinking. Although it seems cruel to punish them with the sword, it is crueler... That they condemn the ministry of the word and have no well grounded doctrine and suppress the truth, and in this way seek to subvert the civil order. Again, he just thought of those things together. We don't do that because we live in a very different time. So, nevertheless, that doesn't mean that we can give them a pass. We certainly can't ignore or dismiss or whitewash their flaws. They were sinners, some of their sin was inexcusable and egregious. This problem is not just a problem as we look back on the Reformation, but other times and places as well. George Whitfield was a heroic church leader in the 1700s. He was a catalyst, a major catalyst in the Great Awakening revival that swept through Europe and the American colonies in 1730s and 40s. And Whitfield owned slaves. Now... He also labored to preach the gospel to the slaves throughout the colonies and he honored them by that counterculture pursuit and the manner in which he treated them was very different, but he still owned slaves. Or John Wesley was a pathetic husband. The list could go on. I mean, you could talk about it in a lot of different ways. But... So first thought, we understand the people. We understand their context. We do not whitewash or minimize, or justify away their sins. But this thought is key. Really helpful to me as I thought about it this week. Um, To see the connection between this tension and the tension that we find. Have you felt this tension reading Hebrews 11? By faith, Noah. So he built the ark, that's great, you know. But then he also got drunk and lay naked in his tent and whoo, should we whitewash? The Bible doesn't whitewash that. And he still was in Hebrews 11. He is in Hebrews 11 as an example of a life of faith. How about David? Obvious. An adulterer and a murderer. You feel the tension? But he's still in Hebrews 11. How about Samson? Did you know Samson is in Hebrews 11? Like, I don't know, maybe the only time he exercised faith was at the end of his life. But he did, and he's in Hebrews 11. And we do feel the tension. The list could go on. So what do we do with this tension? Well, as much as possible, again, understand the people and the context, be honest with the flaws and sin, call it out, we don't have to whitewash it. And then what we do is we celebrate not them, I think we can honor them, but we don't celebrate them. We celebrate the gospel that holds forth such glorious hope for flawed people such as them and us. So actually encouraging. So honor these flawed saints who were used by God despite their flaws to do great things. So kind of To close off this little caveat here, Scott Hubbard wrote an article that I found particularly helpful, and he said this, If we try to whitewash, we hide a lesson all of us need to hear, namely that Satan in our own hearts can deceive us so thoroughly that we cannot even see the ways our lives contradict our message. Studying the Reformers should humble us and send us searching for our own flaws that we fail to see. Even at their best, the Reformers were object lessons for the gospel they preached. Jesus came for failing, broken people. God does not search for a beautiful people to save. Instead, he searches for broken people to make beautiful through his son, Jesus Christ. If the gospel is only for the beautiful, only for saints who leap from peak to peak on their way to glory, then the gospel isn't for you and me. A gospel that promises instant and total transformation is a sentimental lie. A rose hiding its thorn, a vain attempt to to varnish the canvas of history and human hearts so we don't look so desperately wicked. In other words, it's no gospel at all. The Reformation was never about a cast of holy characters, but instead about one holy Christ, the Son of God, whose suffering and resurrection fully cover his people's sins, including the sins they commit when they should certainly know better. Jesus has washed our reformers white with his own precious blood. You and I don't have to. So that all leads nicely now into our final sola, sola de gloria, or to the glory of God alone. Remember what he said. Even at their best, the reformers were object lessons for the gospel they preached. Jesus came for failing broken people. God does not search for beautiful people to save. Instead, he searches for broken people to make beautiful through his son, Jesus Christ. And as a result, who gets all the glory? If it was just the beautiful people, just the people that were good enough, then who gets the glory? So he alone gets all the glory. Like Psalm 115, it should be in our hearts welling up and it was probably welling up this morning as we sung those songs, on our lips, Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So, as we consider Soledad Gloria, I want to just start by thinking of another person who is kind of, Loosely connected to the Reformation, um, Johann Sebastian Bach lived 200 years after Martin Luther. Bach was born on March 21, 1685, in the German city of Eisenach. So he actually went to the same school that Luther went to in Eisenach, okay? Okay. He was deeply influenced by Luther. He was able to pour over the Bible in his own language, in German, because Luther had translated the Bible into German 200 years previous. Okay, so even if you don't know or like Bach's music, I'm guessing we've all heard of him. Everybody? Okay. So during his lifetime, though, neither Bach nor his contemporaries ever thought his music would be famous for centuries to come. So he humbly created in relative obscurity. Most of the stuff he created was just for the church. Just. It was for his church. And he died. And it wasn't until Mendelssohn, you probably know that name, maybe, rediscovered his music about a century later that his music really became appreciated for the genius that it was. So Bach composed these epic pieces like The Passion of St. John, The Passion of St. Matthew, all for use as in worship services. Passion of St. Matthew has sometimes been called the supreme cultural achievement of all Western civilization. So even though he is now considered one of the greatest composers of all time, he didn't think too much of himself. And you know why? It's because he got this, that the glory belongs to God alone. So conductor and composer Patrick Kavanaugh he wrote this. He said, J.S. Bach was never attracted to stardom, fame, or fortune. This unquestionable genius was refreshingly modest and unassuming. He told a student, just practice diligently and it will go very well. You have five fingers on each hand, just as healthy as mine. Once, when an acquaintance praised Bach's wonderful skill as an organist, Bach demonstrated his characteristic humility and wit by replying, there's nothing very wonderful about it. You have only to hit the right notes at the right moment and the instrument does the rest. So he didn't think too much of himself but he did think much of God he had this practice whenever he would sit down to compose at the top of the page he would form two letters J J and JJ stood for Jesu Juva Latin for Jesus help me and then he'd pour out his heart and soul and his work. And once he was finished and he was satisfied with his work, he would write three more little letters at the bottom of the composition, S-D-G. Can you guess what they stand for? Come on, are you awake? All right, soli Deo Gloria. So the purpose of his work was always the glory of God. He wanted to reflect the glory of God in his creative work and he wanted to give all the glory for his beautiful music to the one from whom it came through whom it came because it should abound to his glory so jesus helped me soli Deo gloria it sounds like a really great summary of the christian life doesn't it sounds like a great way to bookend all of life So we'll come back to that at the end. But this Sola series has been a study of the five summary points of the Reformation, which is really recovery of the gospel of grace, the summary of of those key teachings and doctrines. Russell summarized them well earlier. So we're justified, declared righteous before God in his sight, accepted by God, by grace alone. It's a gift through faith alone. That's the only way we access it is with the empty hands of faith. And it's in or based on the finished work of Christ alone. And so it abounds then to the glory of God alone. So today we have the final sola. This is the purpose of all the others. It's the reason why all the others matter so much because they preserve the glory of God in salvation. So let's look at Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. I know that was like a really long introduction, but we made it. Okay. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Read this section and then start to walk through it a little bit this morning. So Paul writes, and he's just, talk about theology leading to doxology. Here it is right here. All the theology of the first chapter first 11 chapters is now just exploding in praise and doxology. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, I pray that you would please help us not only to understand how all theology should lead to doxology, but would you cause it to happen Would you cause the glory of the gospel, your glory in the face of Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Substitute, our High Priest, Sacrificial Lamb, our Friend, our everything, to be so sweet, especially in light of what we deserve deserving your righteous wrath, that it would be so sweet to us that we couldn't help but explode with joy and thanksgiving and praise like Paul does here. Praising your greatness, your majesty, your glory. So cause it to happen this morning, cause it to happen tomorrow morning, regularly in our lives, that we would be, that we are people, like Ephesians 1 says, that we would be to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first point as we walk through the passage here, oh the depth. So look at verse 33. Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So again, this is kind of the the climax, as it were, after all these 11 chapters of doctrine. And we've actually looked at some of them earlier in the series. Um, We looked at chapter four and chapter three. And so all of this grace that's ours in Christ and, and God's work in human history and providence to bring this grace to us. The glories of chapter 8, just think about all of that glorious truth that God's working all things together for good, that nothing can separate us from his love, all of that. The the challenging and confusing things in chapters 9 through 11 about God's sovereignty and our responsibility and, and the hardening on the Jews and then it opening up and the gospel going to the nations and then one day... Jews will be revived and brought in and saved, and all of this stuff. He's just unpacking all of this, and then he just can't help but worship God for His grace. So, I think it's sometimes surprising, maybe even confounding, maybe even counterintuitive, us, counterintuitive for us to see how God's, God works in our lives and in history. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but when we're living in the midst of it, it can be really hard. It also can and should be humbling and awe-inspiring. The depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge, it's just deeper than the ocean. There's just no way we could plumb the depths. It's just beyond us. We're too small. He's too great. Oh, the depth. So Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So when we wrestle and are frustrated or disappointed or we are angry or we rage, instead of doubt and anger, what if, what if this wonderment is actually intended to be a reason for worship? To be reminded of how small we are, how big and great he is. I mean, have you ever, I think what we do have, we probably all have experienced this to some degree or other, have you ever had those aha moments, weeks? months, years, decades later. You're confused going through some difficult providence. And then in hindsight, you go, oh, look at how God worked that for his glory. Can those times serve our faith to trust him when we don't understand where his ways being so infinitely higher than ours would be reason to worship, not reason to rage against him? Like the Cooper poem, trust, um, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Even though he waits on that sometimes and it's not as quick as we would like, we can trust him. So in so many things, we're not going to see, we're not going to understand why until the end. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is most certainly true. We, we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we only know in part, but then we shall know fully even as we've been fully known. So this is true on the individual level. It's true on every other level, family level church level, denominational level, broad sweeps of history, on up to ultimate cosmic, like God's purposes in creation level. The depth of his wisdom is unplumbable. And so, because it's so deep, his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. You see the connection? The depth, he says, oh, the depth. And so therefore, how how can we possibly grasp all of this? So rather than leading to frustration, it leads Paul to this humble worship. God is big. We are small. He's really, really big. We're really, really small. And Romans 1 to 11 tells us over and over and over again that this big, infinitely wise, just God is also good and gracious and merciful so we can trust him when we don't understand what he's doing. So Paul goes on to explain why his judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable in verse 34. He doesn't need anything. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's a quote from Isaiah 40 verse 13 where we see this big God who, who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and you know, all the nations are just like a drop in the bucket. He's so big. They're like emptiness and nothing compared to him. So who would have known ahead of time, that's why the disciples were so confused, that's why the Pharisees hung him on a cross, who would have known that that God would send his Messiah to save the world, that he would take on flesh and be a poor peasant carpenter born to a young girl raised in a nowhere town, dead-end town, kind of like the wrong side of the tracks. It's just... They wouldn't have ever conceived of it, but then, in hindsight, we start to say, oh, the wisdom. They thought this was folly and weakness. Oh, no, it's wisdom and power. No one can fully claim to know the mind of the Lord. We don't know the mind of the Lord until he's revealed it to us. So we're ignorant. He's omniscient. He's infinitely wise, and we are foolish and naive in comparison. So, I mean, which of us... Dust balls could ever presume to be God's counselor. And yet, how often when we're perplexed or frustrated, I mean, have we thought or felt, even if we haven't put the words, like formed it into words, like, why did you let this happen? If I were God, why won't you answer this prayer as if God is a fool and we are so wise, as if we could counsel him? Just like Job, after he was addressed by God and he saw God's greatness, I mean, he, he was just about driven mad because he didn't, it didn't make sense to him. And he was starting to question God's goodness and justice. But then he saw God. He was confronted by God. He heard from God and he saw God's greatness and his smallness and he was given perspective and he put his hand over his mouth. So we're encouraged here to do the same thing, to praise God for the depths of his wisdom, not to curse him for the things we don't understand. So speaking of Job, Paul actually goes on to quote Job in verse 35. Or who has given God a gift that he might be repaid? So we have nothing ultimately to offer God. We can never put God in our debt All we have is already his. He's the one who gave it to us. Acts 17, 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So we can never do anything in order to earn or win his favor. The only wages we deserve is death. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin. So God doesn't need our counsel. He needs no gifts. You can't bribe Him. You can't ever put God in your debt. So then Paul finishes by giving the ultimate reason why no one can give anything to God. Point number four on the outline, if you're using that or up on the screen, verse 36 Love this verse. I think we can meditate and ponder the depths of this verse, the breadth of this verse, for the rest of our lives. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So, of course, therefore, he gets all the glory. Sola Dea Gloria. To him alone be glory forever. Amen? So from him and through him are all things. What do you have that you did not receive? So we can't boast as if we didn't receive it. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. James 1.17. God demonstrates his love in that while we were sinners, we had no claim on him. He gave his son to die for us. Romans 5.8. I mean, it's just It's just all over Romans. You you know what you could do? If you want a little Bible study, just put from him, through him, and to him at the heading on a piece of paper and read through Romans and just see all the stuff that fits into every one of those categories. Oh, that's from him. 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 That's through him. Only through him. Only by his grace. Only through his grace. Only through his grace. Only through his grace. And so, of course, he gets the glory. 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 Because we're all together under sin, right? Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So then he says, but now, and turns and lays out the gospel. Verse 22, chapter 3 of Romans. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, of course, salvation is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So with that kind of predicament, with this kind of gospel of grace, there's no boasting. We have no right, no reason to boast, which is why in Romans 3:27 then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. So here's this gospel of Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And of course, it's to the glory of God alone. So if you are a Christian here this morning, why are you a Christian? To what do you attribute it? Is it because, well, you know, I've always been kind of spiritually minded, interested in the things of God? Well, why? Where are you, spiritually minded and interested in the things of God? From Him. All things. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, you know, went to the Christian school, heard that. Well, there's plenty of people that do that and don't believe in Jesus. So why do you? Is it anything in you? Are you just smarter than those other people? No, from Him. This is really sobering and humbling, and it ought to just cause us to tremble with joy? Like, uh. is it because you're smarter or more insightful or wiser? No. Well, you know, I just discerned the coherence of Christianity and I, I, I searched all these things out. Is it because of your search? Why'd you search? There's plenty of people with higher IQs than every one of us in this room that have rejected Christianity. Is it because you're so nice and God likes nice people? Well, that's no, okay, no. Romans 9 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Moses quoting God. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He said that to Moses. And then Paul writes, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy from Him, all things. Through Him, all things. And so, to Him, the glory for all things. It's the most humbling, like, Thanksgiving producing truth in the world. So, Christians, we're going to struggle with why, of course. We're going to have, like, humble, honest questions, but not the kind of ugly, you know, put God in the dock, in the courtroom, to kind of You know, challenge him and cross-examine him, like, why me? No, if if you're alive together with Christ, it's I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. Why me? What's the answer to that question? It's not in you. It's not in me. It's not because there's anything special like, oh, I really want to have him on my team. It's going to bring so much to the table. It's, it's the answer's in god 1st corinthians 1 for consider your calling brothers and sisters that there were not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble but god has chosen <coughs> god has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise god has chosen see that's the decisive Work right there, God's work to choose. God has chosen the weak things of the world, to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. Because to him alone belongs the glory. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, from him, through him who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. From him, all things, through him, all things, to him alone belongs all the glory. So this is, again, it's, in, it's true at the individual level. It's true at family, community, society, cosmic levels. It's From him and through him and to him are all things. Of course we're going to have questions. Of course we're going to go, That's why Paul goes, In Romans 9, and he ends up with his hand over his mouth. Because again, we're really, really, really small. God's really, really, really big. So, if this is the case, that all things are from him and through him, then all things are to him, to his glory, to him be the glory forever. Here's the thing. And I don't tried not to make this whole series this big kind of anti-Catholic bashing thing, but we need to show the distinctions here. The most troubling thing about Roman Catholic doctrine is how it disparages the glory of God in Christ. So, just a few examples, actually less than I planned because of what time it is. Um, Just take indulgences in purgatory. If if the sacrifice of Christ is enough, if it's fully sufficient, why would you need to purchase an indulgence in order to reduce the time in purgatory? It's forgiveness at a price. Paying to not have to pay for your sins. No. Do you see how that just shrinks down the work of Christ on the cross. It belittles the glory of Christ, His finished work on the cross. Purgatory, listen to the Catholic catechism. Purgatory is a state of final purification after death and before entrance into heaven for those who died in God's friendship but were only imperfectly purified, a final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter the joy of heaven. Of course, we're going to die imperfect. But the question is, is the atoning work of Christ enough to cover all of our sins? How does that not defame the once for all full atonement glory of the work of Christ? We could go on and on with Mariology and other things. But again, what we're concerned about is that the glory goes to God alone because from Him are all things, and through him are all things, and so therefore to him all the glory belongs. So, solity of glory ought to be the ultimate litmus test for all so-called guiding lights. Do they spotlight the glory of God through Christ, or do they obscure it? And, let's just not point the finger out there, let's look in here. How about our lives? Do our lives spotlight the glory of God through Christ, or are we obscuring it? We are to be, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Did you hear that refrain three times? Be to the praise of his glorious grace. So the final point, living between JJ and SDG. Maybe you see where we're going here. Let's let Bach be an example to us. For him, it was his musical skill. For you, it's something else. But it is so consciously lived. Like, what if we just so consciously lived our lives... By grace, through faith, in Jesus. Jesus, help me to the glory of God alone. So all our talents, all our gifts, all our time, all our treasure, because all things are from him and through him and to him, to his glory alone. What if every day, what if every endeavor was bracketed by those initials, JJ and SDG, your motherhood? Jesus, help me. And he helps you. And you're going to mess up, of course. But through his strength, you're going to mother in such a way that he's going to get the glory. And your kids are going to get the blessing. Your marriage. Jesus, help me. Your parenting. Jesus, help me. Your business. Jesus, help me your finances, your schooling. Jesus, help me. From him, through him. Soli de gloria. Living for his glory. I mean, such like the small kind of individual things, like I really need to share the gospel with this person. Jesus, help me. And then it's to his glory when you are Faithful. You need to have a hard conversation with someone, like send an email to the pastor you know, to confront him. Jesus, help me. I don't know. All the little things, all the big things, all to the glory of God alone. Amen? So let's pray, and we're going to sing again and praise our great God. A couple of verses of Behold Our God. Lord, I pray that you would please help us to live these Reformation solas, that we would base our lives on the rock-solid foundation of the authority of your word, and that we would live every day, every moment, that we would learn to live like this by grace through faith in Jesus and in so doing that you would get much glory from our lives. Please do it in Jesus' name and for your sake, amen.